Today's reading is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we thank you for your law that guides us and shows us in the way in which we can live, in the way in which we can glorify you by by being obedient to it. Help us to do that. Help us to strive to obey your law and to live righteous lives and to be holy as you are holy. Help us as a church to, to do this together, to encourage one another to do this. May we remind each other of your precious law and your statutes. Pray that you would bless Theo today as he preaches, that your spirit would fill him and that your spirit would convict all of us through the reading of your word and through the preaching of your word. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Morning, church. I, uh, I count it this morning to be a privilege and a joy to stand before you. I'm always grateful when the elders give me this opportunity uh, to open up the word before you all. And um, as we just read a moment ago this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 1. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 1 this morning. This is the first Sunday um, in our summer series And our summer series is going to be going through the Psalms and the Proverbs. Uh, So I get the the privilege this morning of kicking us off with the very first Psalm. Um, As I kick us off this morning with this very first Psalm, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Psalms in general uh, before we look specifically just at uh, verse uh, uh, 1, just at Psalm 1. The word Psalms literally uh, in Hebrew is this word Tehillim, and what that means is songs of praise. Uh, So the Psalms in Hebrew means songs of praise. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, uh, this word uh, is the word Salmonoi, and Salmonoi is the plucking of strings with the finger. Um, eventually, uh, the Greek Christians began to call it uh, sacred songs sung to musical accompaniment. And so this book of Psalms is God's songbook right here in the middle of our Bibles. And that tells us a lot about God. And that tells us a lot about uh, the way that God prioritizes music. Obviously, by this book being right in the middle of our Bibles, God places a high priority on music. These words here in the Psalms were written to be sung. And this book instructs us in so many ways as it gives us all these great songs from God It tells us about God, it tells us about human nature, and it tells us about how life is to be lived. The Psalms give us so much instruction. In so many ways, it's a book of poetry. Uh, The rhythmic, catchy writing that the authors use uh, really does a great job in um, allowing truth, you know, to be memorable, uh, to be able to stick in our minds. And uh, one one author has written this. His name is Ronald Allen. He says this. He says that there's a threefold distinction that you make in the Old Testament. He says in the Old Testament you have revelation, you have reflection, and you have response. Revelation is the Torah, those books of the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all those guys. And then reflection is books like Proverbs. And as I said before, we're going to go between Psalms and Proverbs this summer. Uh, So Proverbs is books of reflection. 
And then the Psalms are books of response. And so in a large measure, the Psalms are a book of response. Another author, uh, Bernard Anderson, he's written this. For the Bible as a whole is not only the story of God's dealings with his people, but also the witness of his people's response in thanksgiving and adoration and lament and petition along their pilgrimage throughout history. And so this morning, I'm not going to say everything that you can possibly say about the Psalms. They're worth reflection and study in and of themselves as a whole. Uh, but I do want to tell you a couple things about how they relate to God and how this truth affects even us in a very deep way. One of the really interesting things about the Psalms is that they express to us who God is, and they also show us um, just this spectrum of human emotions. In so many ways, they show us uh, the spectrum of the emotions that we deal with as people every day. In a lot of ways, the Psalms have always been a book that's brought about comfort and direction to believers. Jesus himself uses the Psalms frequently in the New Testament. I'll give you just a couple references for that. In uh, Matthew 22, also in Mark 12, as well as Luke 20, Jesus uses Psalm 110. He quotes these words. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes that scripture frequently in the New Testament. Also in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 when he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus also, when he was on the cross, quotes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even Psalm 31, uh, 5, when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus very frequently quoted from this book, very frequently quoted the book of Psalms. And Psalms um, gives us so much um, depth into our experience with God. You know, the most quoted book of the New Testament, um, sorry, the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. So Psalms has a really high place in the New Testament. The Psalms are meant to stir our emotions. They're meant to, to stir us and to put us into a state where we understand how we should emotionally connect with God. I want to give you a little quote from uh, one of my, my favorite preachers. His name is John Piper. Uh, he said this as he was talking about the Psalms. He says, one of the reasons the Psalms are deeply loved by so many Christians is that they are an expression to an amazing array of emotions. Listen to this list of emotions I pulled together. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted. Psalm 23, 16. Love. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 18, 1. Awe. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 33. Sorrow. My life is spent with sorrow. Psalm 31.10. Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Psalm 38.18. Contrition. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51.17. Discouragement and turmoil. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42, 5. Shame. Shame has covered my face. Psalm 44, 15. Exaltation. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. Psalm 21, 1. Marveling. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, 23. Delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, 
too. Joy. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 4, 7. Gladness. I will be glad and exalt you. Psalm 9, 2. Fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Psalm 2, 11. Anger. Be angry and do not sin. Psalm 4, 4. Peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Psalm 4, 8. Grief. My eye wastes away because of grief. Psalm 6, 7. Desire. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Psalm 10, 17. Hope. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Psalm 33, 22. Brokenheartedness. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. Gratitude. I will thank you in the congregation. And that verse is found in Psalm 35, 18. See, more explicitly than so many other books in the Bible, the Psalms are designed to awaken and to shape our emotions. They give us instruction, but they instruct us in a way that affects us deeply. And the whole spectrum of human emotions we see right here in these Psalms. And so, so oftentimes we feel like we're going through um, so much inner turmoil about so many different circumstances of life, so many different situations and things that come upon us. And in this book, we have a refuge. In this book, we have a place to go to that shows us that God understands our emotions. God understands our feelings. He sympathizes with us, and he gives us instruction as to how we should feel, how we should relate to, to him, how our emotions should connect us to the Lord and what he wants to speak to us in and through his book of songs, and then through his book of poetry, the book of the Psalms. See, what happens when we read and sing the Psalms the way that they are intended to be read and sung is that our emotions and our mind is shaped by God's words. They're shaped by God's message. And so let's look again at Psalm 1 and look just specifically at that Psalm, just, just from a big picture standpoint. Psalm 1 is a wisdom Psalm. It's a Psalm that gives us counsel. And to just summarize the entire text right here in Psalm 1 is just this, this one idea. It's a really clear, very simple idea. It's this one idea. This idea is that in life, there's no middle ground for humanity. There's no middle ground for people. You are either righteous or you're wicked, as described right here in Psalm 1. Every person you have ever met falls into one of those two categories. They're righteous or they're wicked. And think about that. Think about the individuals that you go to class with or think about the individuals that you work with or your neighbors, your next-door neighbors or your family members or any of those individuals that you come into contact with. And God's word right here in this psalm, he shows us that every single person that we relate to falls into one of those two categories, the righteous and the wicked. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we look at this psalm is we have to ask ourselves this question of, what is the universal human pursuit? What is that thing that every single person, no matter who they are, pursues in their life? I would submit to you this morning that the universal human pursuit is happiness. And so oftentimes when people are preaching through this text, uh, they, they use this idea of, of happiness. There's a lot to be said here about, about being the blessed man, about being the blessed person. They, they look at this idea of happiness. 
And I think that that's accurate. I think that in a lot of ways, what every single human being pursues on some level in their entire lives is happiness. Even, even our Declaration of Independence affirms that, right? The Declaration of Independence says uh, that all men pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We find within ourselves this overwhelming compulsion to be happy. And what we know as believers, as Christians, is that we are made by God for God. And to truly be happy, you can only be connected to God. True happiness is only found in God. Our hearts are restless until we are arrested by the grace of God. Uh, This is um, a big, big idea that St. Augustine had, is that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, until they find our rest in God. And so what Psalm 1 is going to tell us this morning is Psalm 1 is going to tell us the path to happiness. How do you truly connect to happiness? That's what Psalm 1 is going to show us. And I titled this message this morning, um, The Blessed Man or the Blessed Life. There's, there's this class here at the University of Florida. Whenever I was at UF, uh, this class was called uh, First Year Florida. Um, I think right now it is called um, The Good Life. And so uh, this Good Life class is a class that every single new student at UF takes. Um, and so my, my title is kind of adapted from that, is this idea of uh, the blessed life. Uh, so what does the blessed life look like? I want to talk about that right here in this verse uh, of Psalm, Psalm 1. Let's read again uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. Psalm 1, verse 1 says this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In summary, the blessed man avoids certain types of, of community. He avoids certain types of fellowship, so to speak. The blessed man um, is a man who avoids certain types of people. And this word blessed here is a really unique word in, in Hebrew. Uh, this word blessed, you can translate it as blessednesses, um, or another uh, better way of saying it is uh, to say to be envied. Uh, so literally, uh, you can replace that phrase to be envied right here where it says blessed. So you can read it like this. To be envied is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That type of man, that type of man is to be envied above all people. When you're trying to emulate a person's life, when when you're trying to look to a person to be like, be like this man, be like this blessed man. This person is to be envied, the person who rejects this type of counsel. And what what it shows us right here in Psalm 1 is it shows us kind of this, this pattern of worldliness, this pattern of what it means to be in the world and what it means to be separated from God's ways. And so in this pattern of worldliness, we see the first thing is that the first thing that a person does is they walk with the world. He says, the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. First you walk with them, and then you stand where they stand, and then finally you sit in their seat. So you walk, you stand, you sit. Let's talk first about that walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked, uh, right here in this verse, this is a call for all of us to reject listening to sinful society. And this, what this reminds me of um, personally, individually, is when I was growing up, I grew up in South Florida. Uh, so I moved from South Florida up to just outside of Gainesville. Um, when I uh, was living in South Florida, um, I never grew up with my dad. Uh, my dad was really never around during my, like, my formative years whenever I was growing up. 
I lived in the house with my mom and my mom's mom and my grandfather and a couple other family members who were all a lot older than I was. I was the only kid in the house. And one of the unique things that happened because of that is I had a next-door neighbor, and this next-door neighbor did a lot to instruct me. Uh, he was uh, this, this guy who was probably about 38 or 39, and what he would do is he would kind of pull me aside each day uh, once I got home from school, and he would teach me stuff. He would just give me advice. He would just give me uh, different, like, words of uh, what he saw as wisdom. And he was a person who kind of had this mindset around uh, believing in spirituality. Uh, he's a very spiritual man. Uh, he taught me about karma, and he taught me a, a lot of these, like, spiritual ideas that had a lot to do with, like, uh, African religions and things like that. Um, and he, he did his best to give me advice and wisdom because he knew I didn't have a dad and I needed someone to listen to, and he was that person in my life. But as I look back and I reflect on all of those things that he taught me, I realized that, that he is what John Bunyan would call that worldly wise man. He is that person who was trying to give me this wisdom, but this wisdom wasn't rooted and grounded in Scripture. And this wisdom wasn't rooted and grounded in God. This wisdom had nothing to do with God and his word. And this worldly wise man, um, as, as I would come to call him later, was a person who was trying to, to pour into my life with these words, but these words were disconnected from the words of the Bible. And we in our lives find that so often. So often we find that there's so many people out there in the world who want to give us counsel, who want to give us advice, who want to, to shape our direction in life, who want to shape our minds and the way that we view the world, shape our worldview. We find that there's so many people who want to speak into these areas of our life. But what Psalm 1 says right here is, Blessed is the man to be envied is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And we need to define what a wicked person is, so, so we're going to do that as we continue to go throughout this psalm. But the first thing we see is we should reject the counsel of the wicked. The Bible gives us discernment, the discernment necessary to understand the difference between truth and error, to understand the difference between what is actually fact and what is indeed false. That's what the Scripture does for us says, doesn't take the counsel of the wicked, but he also doesn't stand in the way of sinners. To stand in Scripture is to be firmly established. Romans 14 says uh, that this idea of standing means just to be firmly established. So to stand in the way of sinners is just to be established in sin, just to be um, permanently rooted in sin. And then he says, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And this sit in the seat kind of looks like a strange phrase, uh, but if we think back again to being in college um, and we think back to some of the uh, professors that we know here in our university city, uh, we understand that there are many professors who are the chair of their department. Uh, so, for example, uh, again, back whenever I was here at the University of Florida as a student, uh, I was a history major. Um, and w within the history department, uh, there was a person uh, whose name was Dr. David Calhoun. Uh, sorry, Dr. David Colburn, and Dr. David Colburn was uh, one of my professors. He taught me um, one of my history classes, and he was the chair of the history department. Uh, he was a great guy, uh, very helpful to me in my experience at UF, uh, but he was the chair of the history department. And um, later on, um, I would take a class with Dr. Adams, Dr. Sean Adams, and Dr. Adams is currently now the Hyatt and C.C. Brown professor of history. Uh, he's, the, he's the chair um, of um, the, the C.C. and Hyatt Brown uh, seat. You can, uh, you can say that he occupies the brown chair 
so to speak. And so this idea of, of being in the chair is being in a position of authority, being in a position of teaching, having um, authority over a particular area of the department. And Jesus uses this same language. He uses this language in Matthew 23. He says these words. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the words they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Jesus says these scribes and these Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. They are in the place of Moses. They're the chief interpreters of Moses' words. They hold Moses' authority. So the scribes and the Pharisees, whatever they tell you to do, do it. Because they understand what the law says, but they don't practice the law very well. They don't do what the law says. They're great preachers, but they're bad livers. So listen to them, Jesus says, but don't do what they do. They sit in that chair. And that's what it means to sit in the seat of scoffers. You know, you've you've advanced beyond counsel to, to standing in that place of sinners, to standing in that idea, standing in worldliness, standing in the world's way, and you've gone beyond counsel, beyond standing, to sitting in a seat. You become a teacher. You become an instructor. You become a person who begins to teach others how to be a worldly individual. And so the Psalms is telling us, don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And that word scoffer is not a word that we use oftentimes nowadays, so let me just uh, kind of break that word down for a second. To be a scoffer is just to be a person who mocks the faith. Um, In so many ways, we see so many individuals who who are like this. These are people who are filled with doubt, people who are filled with scorn. Uh, These are people that mock sin and they mock eternity. They mock the presence of heaven and of hell. These are people that mock God himself. And so to be a scoffer is just to be a mocker, just to be the type of person that says, All that stuff in the Bible, all that Christian stuff, all that spiritual stuff that you talk about, like, that's not true. I mock that. Like, I think that that's just a joke. For you to be that type of person is to be a weak person. You know, a mocker and a scoffer, they're one and the same. And so Psalm 1 says in verse 1, don't be the type of person who receives the counsel of the wicked. Neither be the type of person that stands firmly in worldliness. And don't be the person that would even go further than those two things to be a teacher of those people in the way of the world. And then, in complete contrast, comes verse 2. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And this comes in total contrast to what we just read a second ago. You see, within the flow of thought right here in this psalm, you're either a verse 1 type of person or you're a verse 2 type of person. There's two paths that God sets before us. The contrast here isn't so much between sinful and um, unsinful activities, not so much between those two things, but it's more so about what is the dominant influence over your mind. Are you more influenced by the world, or are you more influenced by the word? What is the most dominant influence over your values? Do you hold the values of God, or do you hold the values of God? the world, of this worldly system, of those who don't know God. If we are not led by the word of God, we are being led by the world. You cannot escape those two choices. One or the other will dominate your life. Only those who delight in the word of God, verse 2, only those who delight in the word of God are righteous. 
all those who reject the word are wicked. And, you know, as, as, as I, th- I thought about this th- this week, you know, I, I thought about like every, every kind and smiling neighbor of ours uh, who may be outwardly very pleasant and good people, um, all these people God defines as wicked if they're not people of the word, if they're not people who delight in God's law. You see, all those who live in God's world without a thought of God, receiving all of his blessings but living as though he doesn't exist, those are wicked people. They're actually antagonistic towards God. Do they pray? Yes, they pray in a crisis when things are really, really, really bad. They pray. But they don't know God, and God doesn't know them. And so... This is a difficult view to absorb. It's a difficult view to hold to. Uh, This is a scriptural view. It's that God gives us these distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. It says in verse 2, it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And we do what we delight in. That's that's a natural human response to to anything. You know, if if I go to the beach, if I go to... The lake. If I'm the type of person who likes to uh, to, to shoot skeet, or if I'm the, the type of person uh, who likes to like climb mountains, or any of those types of things, I usually do what I delight in. It's not hard to convince me to do something I find to be fun. It's to be enjoyable. And what the psalmist is telling us is our delight should be in the law of the Lord. That thing that really uh, motivates us, that that encourages us, that makes us happy, that brings joy into our souls, should be the word of the Lord. See, human beings always strive to do what makes them happy. This is the universal human pursuit. And I pray that all of you who are here today who know Christ and have been saved by him truly delight and are thrilled by the law of God. That's one of the marks of a believer. He says that he delights in the law of the Lord. And this law, the psalmist has in mind here, is the entire word of God. So when it says the law, like, don't think that this is just like the first five books of the Bible, what we uh, typically call the law. When the psalmist uses law here, he means like the entirety of Scripture. Uh, So uh, let me show you that in Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9, says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And when he says precepts, and he says commandments, and he says ordinances, and he says law, all of these words are synonymous to just mean the word of God. All of these words are just synonyms that mean the same thing just to mean God's word. So we can look at Psalm 1 and see in Psalm 1 when he says his delight is in the law of the Lord. This law of the Lord is the entirety of Scripture. He says you should meditate on this law day and night. The better word for for meditate um, is this word muttering. 
Um, you know, you, you can translate meditate uh, most directly to mean muttering. And for the longest time, Christians didn't have a paper Bible. Christians didn't have a paper Bible in their hands that they can hold all the time. The first English Bible wasn't even printed until 1526. And so how did people know the Bible? How did people know the Word of God? Well, the way that people knew the Bible and they knew the Word of God was that people would, they would, they would mutter it. People would just repeat it. They would recite it. They would memorize it. People would sing it. And so this word meditate right here literally just means muttering. And so he's saying that the, the righteous person, the person uh, who is connected to the Lord, who knows God, the person who is righteous, this person mutters, he meditates, he constantly recites and repeats the word of God both day and night. Blessed is the man who meditates on his word day and night. It's his constant, constant meditation. Charles Bridges, he's written this in uh, his book, The Christian Ministry. He said, there is no movement from the heart to the exhibition of truth is by the habit of meditation clearly exhibited to the mind, set strongly and constantly in view, deeply pondered, and closely applied to the heart. You want to live a life that pleases God? You got to take his word and chew on it, meditate on it, think deeply about it, and then your heart can be moved to be stirred to know God and stirred to follow God. Let's look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The blessed man is like a tree. He's rooted and he's secure. He has provision from the stream. He is refreshed. He yields fruit. He is healthy. He prospers. The word says, the truly blessed man who's connected to the stream, who's connected to the word, he's rooted, he has provision, he's refreshed, he yields fruit, he is healthy, and he prospers. This is what it means to flourish in life. It's to be connected to God's word. You see, so many times in our lives, we go through periods of drought. We go through periods where we don't feel as, as motivated, as spurred on, as encouraged. And in these times of drought, you, you have to be connected to the Word of God. You have to be connected to the stream. You have to be connected to God's very words. Because even though there are times where uh, we become dry, we become empty, to truly be connected to this stream, verse 3 says, you're going to have constant refreshment. You're going to constantly be built up by the Lord. This verse at the end says, and all that he does, he prospers. And that seems like a contradiction in so many ways. Are there times when it seems like the righteous don't prosper? Absolutely, seemingly, from our, our, our outward um, eyes, our, our inability to see what God is doing um, invisibly, to see what God is doing on a spiritual level. Like you look at Jesus and you say, and all that Jesus does, he prospers. Wow, it seems like Jesus suffered a lot. You look at Paul and you say, in all that he does, he prospers. It really seems like Paul suffered a lot. What does that mean? And all that he does, he prospers. Well, spiritually, spiritually, both of those people, both Paul and Jesus, spiritually, both of them flourished. They were always connected to the Lord. They were always connected to these streams of water. And consequently, 
on an invisible level that we can't see with our human eyes, but on that spiritual level where you connect it to the Lord and you connect it to his will, they are flourishing and they are prospering. And they were doing an incredibly mighty work of God that has lasted all these 2,000 years later. And they are right now in the presence of God, flourishing forever, as we all will do, as we know Christ and have truly come uh, to receive him. So in all that we do, we will prosper if we are connected to this word. And so on one side, you have this righteous person. This righteous person does what righteous people do in that they are connected to the word and they reject the counsel of the world. But on the other side, you have the wicked. And we look at that person in verse 4. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. In the end, the life of the wicked person is like nothing. It's emptiness. This life of the wicked person is like chaff, it's dust, and it's worthless. And this is such a good word picture for us because on one side you have this righteous person, and this righteous person is connected to this stream. Even though the stream may be a little bit far off, their roots go all the way down, it's connected to this stream. And then on the other side you have the chaff. And chaff is just like, like, like when you cut wheat and you take it and you thresh it um, and, and you, you winnow it, what you get as the byproduct is these little husks these little husks of the wheat. And so this, this is what, what chaff is. And what it says is the, the, the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water, and the unrighteous person is like a husk. Just, it's nothing. It's empty. That, right, that unrighteous person, that wicked person, it's just vanity and emptiness and nothingness before God. Literally, uh, when verse 4 says, um, not so the wicked, it's, it's, it's a double negative. Um, it's, it's this emphatic phrase. It says, not so, not so the wicked. Like the psalmist is emphasizing that this wicked person is a complete contrast to this righteous person. Not so the wicked, not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And you, you, you ask this question, you know, why is it that, this, that the, the, the author said not so twice? What's, what, what's the purpose of that? And for us, it's, it's this really simple idea. Like, you, you, you're you living life just like I'm living life, and you see that there are so many people who are not connected to the Lord who seem to be prospering, and they seem to be doing really well in their lives, and they may have a lot of money and a lot of great things and great stuff. And you say, well, this verse isn't true. Like, how is this verse true? Like, so many people are prospering, and they don't even know God. Um, and they're totally disconnected from, from the king of the universe. And this is why... The psalmist says, not so the wicked, because you're not looking at this person as God sees them. You're not looking at their ultimate final destination. All we can see is the outside. And God says, not so the wicked. He says that these people to him are just like chaff. The wicked seem to prosper. They seem to get away with their actions and their lifestyle. They've been able to their entire lives to stand up to anyone. They're strong so oftentimes. So many of the rich wicked have been able to get into any club that they've wanted to. They've been used to being able to pull any string that's able to be pulled. They're not used to being told no. Surely they believe that on that final day when they stand before God, after getting all that they've wanted their whole lives, that he's going to let them in because they're used to getting what they want. But the psalmist here reminds us that this is not so for the wicked, not so. 
This mindset is absolutely false. God knows those who are his, and God is able to see those who are not his. There was this, this young kid, um, and this, this young kid was walking through the cemetery, and the young kid looked up at his mom, and he says, where are all the bad people? You know, where are all the bad people buried, mom? And this is such a good question for us uh, because uh, we too, just like this kid, uh, we, we've never been to a graveyard or a cemetery uh, that you see a bunch of tombstones that say, here lies this bad person. Here lies this wicked person. That's, that's, that's not an experience that we have. We always see, here lies the great Adam who did such and such, who did all these wonderful things. But we know that in reality, so many of those people, so many of those individuals um, who are there buried, uh, who are dead and gone, they've never darkened the door of a church. They've never opened the Bible. They've never mentioned the name of Jesus except as a swear word. So many of the great things that we say about people after their death, um, we, we, we say, um, and we don't realize what the way that God views life in the way that God views a life that is lived for him and a life that is not lived for him. It's hard for us to say anything bad about a dead person. You know, obviously that's a difficult thing. But what the psalmist is saying here is that you have to see all people that you come into contact with as in one of these two categories. Either they're righteous or they're wicked. Either they're in the word or they're not. See, the Bible doesn't live in this fantasy world that we so oftentimes live with. The Bible deals with truth. And we are told that the wicked are like chaff. They're empty, void, and essentially nothing. And this, this is exactly what Luke 16, 19 teaches us. Uh, just want to look at Luke uh, 16, starting in verse 19. This, this may be a, a very familiar story to you. I think it's a good um, example of this idea. Uh, this is uh, the story of the rich man. And Lazarus, uh, so starting in verse uh, 19 of Luke chapter 16, the word says this. There was a man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what we see in this parable that Jesus gives us is we see this poor man and this rich man. And I just, I just want to make a really simple contrast for you. You see, there's a poor man and a rich man, and there's a poor man who becomes rich and a rich man who becomes poor. The poor man becomes richer than a rich man ever was, and the rich man becomes poorer than a poor man ever was. You have a poor man on the outside of the house, and you have a rich man on the inside. Then comes death, and you have a poor man on the inside and a rich man on the outside. You have a poor man with no food and a rich man with all the food he can possibly need. And then you have a poor man at the great heavenly banquet and a rich man with absolutely nothing. You have a poor man with needs and a rich man with no needs. And then you have a poor man with no needs and a rich man with needs. You have a poor man who desires everything. You have a rich man who desires nothing. And then you have a rich man who will never have his desires fulfilled and a poor man who has all of his desires fulfilled. You have a poor man who suffers and a rich man who is satisfied. And then you have a rich man who suffers and a poor man who is satisfied. You have a poor man who's tormented and a rich man who's happy. And then you have a poor man who's happy and a rich man who's tormented. You have a poor man who is humiliated, a rich man who's honored. Then you have a rich man who is humiliated and a poor man who is honored. You have a poor man who wants a crumb, a rich man who feasts, and then you have a poor man who's at the feast, and a rich man who wants a drop of water. You have a poor man who seeks help, a rich man who gives none. Then you have a rich man who seeks help, and a poor man who gives none. Then you have a poor man who is a nobody, a rich man who is well-known, and then you have a poor man who has a name, and a rich man who has none. You have a poor man who has no dignity in death, not even a burial. You have a rich man who has dignity in death. Then you have a poor man who has dignity after death and a rich man who has no dignity after death, not even a name. You have a poor man with no hope and a rich man with all hope. Then you have a rich man with no hope and a poor man who has hope realized. In biblical terms, this is the great reversal. This is the end of all those who don't know God. The wicked will not escape the Lord. They are like chaff, and on that final day, they will be like this rich man was in the story. They will be like nothing. Let's look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Despite the fact that the wicked seem to be prosperous, it's a deceptive appearance. I love what Spurgeon says about this verse. Spurgeon says this. He says, Well may the saints long for heaven, for no evil men shall dwell there, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. All our congregations upon earth are mixed. Every church hath one devil in it. The tares grow in the same furrows as the wheat. There is no floor which is as yet thoroughly purged from chaff. Sinners mixed with saints as dross mingles with gold. God's precious diamonds still lie in the same field with pebbles. Righteous lots are this side heaven continually vexed by the men of Sodom. Let us rejoice then that in the general assembly in the church of the firstborn above, there shall by no means be admitted a single unrenewed soul. Sinners cannot live in heaven. They will be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. Heaven will be an intolerable hell to an impenitent man. 
even if he will be allowed to enter. But such a privilege has never been granted to the man who perseveres in his iniquities. May God grant that we may have a name and a place in his courts above. Let's, let's uh, summarize everything. I, I feel like, like, like that, that, that passage from, from Spurgeon says so much about the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Um, and let's look at verse 6 as we um, summarize this morning and as we come to a conclusion. Verse 6 says these words. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the righteous. God knows us. And what an amazing thing it is uh, that God knows us inside and out. He knows us better than any other person knows us. And yet um, we have this amazing privilege to be connected to the eternal God of the universe. What an amazing thing it is to be known and loved by God himself. We are known and loved forever. From this point forward, if we are in Christ, we are known and loved by God forever. And then it says the wicked's very way will perish. The wicked themselves will come to an end. Their days are numbered in Scripture. And even the wicked's way will be dust to be remembered no more. The wicked man is like a man building a castle made out of sand right there along the shoreline. And as soon as the tide comes in, it washes everything out to sea. It's as though that man who built that sand castle built nothing because it washes out to sea. That's the life of the wicked man. The way of the wicked will perish. It will be remembered no more. And as I thought about that, I thought back to, to Psalm 139. Psalm, Psalm 139 is um, an amazing psalm. We're actually not, not going to preach through it over the summer. Uh, so I, I, I submit it to you this morning. Uh, this is what Psalm 139 says, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I should make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you forward my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David, in this Psalm 139, gives us this really great picture into what it means to be known by God, truly known by the God of the universe, and what it means to be loved by God. And that contrast between the righteous and the wicked, he says, God, all your enemies are my enemies. All those who stand against you, all those wicked men, I stand against them too because I'm in you, and you have known me both inside and out. And so I implore you this morning to choose the way that you will go. Will you be a righteous person, or will you be a wicked person? The way is set before you, and um, as we begin to close now, I invite you to pray with me um, as we get ready to be led this morning. Some more. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come together uh, today as we just uh, seek to, to be engaged with you, O oh God. Father, I pray that, um, that everyone who is here has been encouraged to personally pursue you in your word. We know, God, that you've equipped us by your word to walk in righteousness and to understand what it means to be wicked. And so, Father, we pray um, that everyone underneath the sound of my voice this day uh, would know you truly, would meditate on your word, and would reject the counsel, the place, the seat, and even the very way of the wicked, for Jesus' sake. Father, in these moments, as we get ready to uh, take communion, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts to take communion joyfully. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would just apply it to our lives, Lord. Uh, there's so many people here this morning that I don't know, but I know that they are known by you. And I pray that you would uh, allow them to know just how much you care for them, how much you love them, how much you want them to turn to you in truth, faith, and repentance. We'll be sure to give you all the thanks for all that you are doing and for all that you have done. And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.